Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, the very fact that we can call you our Father is a testimony to the incredible achievement of your Son who became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and he ultimately embraced a cross. He took sin's penalty upon himself on that cross. You poured out, you, Father, poured out on him, God the Son, become flesh. You poured out on him all of the lake of fire experience due to the human race for an eternity. You poured that all out on him. And he cried out from the cross, it is finished, it is paid in full. Then he dismissed his spirit into your presence. We thank you for what he accomplished for us and that you incited us by the work of your Holy Spirit, you incited us to transfer our trust from our own works, our own religiosity, to him alone. You sent us the Redeemer, and this narrative in Matthew is the opening expression of how that played out. We've got so many prophecies in the Old Testament, but Jesus fulfilled them all. We thank you for that, and we ask that you would, in this time of year, as we are in, with increased devotion, 
focusing on your coming, your first coming, Lord Jesus, that you would enable us to draw from it the fullness of understanding that we need to have for our own blessing's sake to walk with you. In your name, Jesus, shepherd, we pray. Amen. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, resuming the narrative we started reading with the close of chapter 1 earlier. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, they divine, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose... He took the young child and his mother by, by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, 
a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. We see in Matthew chapter 1, this narrative, by the way, we know from Luke's gospel that where Joseph and Mary are living is Nazareth. That's their hometown. That's not stated in Matthew's gospel. It's simply stated that here is this fellow Joseph, and here is his betrothed bride. They actually have a legal contract already in preparation for their coming wedding and marriage. And then Mary brings him word, I'm pregnant. (laughs) But this pregnancy is miraculous. And she has disclosed to him what had been told to her by Gabriel, the angel, and that this was indeed of the Holy Spirit. And he's, I assume, his reaction, well, we know from the text, his reaction is, yeah, right, Right, moving right along. But I don't, according to the book of Leviticus, what should be the outcome for her in that Jewish town and culture? She should be put under a pile of rocks. She should be put under a pile of rocks. Well, he doesn't want that to happen to her. So we're going to do this privately, secretly. I'm going to get rid of that contract we've already got, but... So I mean, that's what it means when he says he's going to put her away privately. We're not going to make this a public declaration because I don't want you being put to death. And then he has the dream in which the angel says to him, take her to be your wife. Because indeed, she's telling you the truth. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Joseph, the opening paragraph of of Matthew's gospel, is Joseph's genealogy. Joseph is a descendant of David. Joseph, actually, according to this genealogy, has the right to the throne of David. He has that right. But it's very interesting. If you read the uh, genealogy, we've got a problem if you read the genealogy, because God said to David, you will have a descendant on the throne. Nobody will ever take the throne in your place. No one apart from the lineage of David ever declared themselves to be the king of the Jews. Now, Herod 
is an appointed king, appointed by the Romans. By the way, he's not even Jewish. He converts to Judaism, the religion, but he's not even Jewish. He is the appointed king, but he in no way makes any claims to being a descendant of David. Here is the line of David. Well, there's this fellow there in the line of David, named there in uh, the genealogy by the name of Jeconiah. He also is called just Kaniah. He was to become king, but that was at the very moment when the Babylonians came and took over and conquered Israel. And so Jeconiah never took the throne. And Jeconiah was so outrageously rebellious and wicked that God said of Jeconiah, also called in other contexts, Kaniah, he will never take the throne. Well, how in the world can God keep his promise to David and keep his promise to Kaniah, Jeconiah? You will always have it is, no one will ever take the throne of Israel but a descendant of yours. And by the way, you will, you will never have a descendant. And Joseph is in the line of both. How do you solve that problem? Well, the solution is actually found in Luke's gospel because you have another genealogy in Luke's gospel also from David. But it's not the same genealogy. And that in Mary was a de- the genealogy in Luke, although it's not specifically stated, it says Joseph, it's really Mary's genealogy. Mary was a descendant of David. So Jesus' humanity drawn from Mary is also a Davidic humanity. So God is able to, Joseph is Jesus' legal father. Jesus gets his legal right to the throne through his legal father, but he is also a descendant of David through his earthly mother, through his human mother. And so God is able to keep the promise to David and Jeconiah. (laughs) Look at what God's fingerprints are all over this. And then we have Christ is born in Bethlehem. Why did, and we know this from uh, Luke's gospel also, why are they in Bethlehem? How did God get Joseph and Mary out of Nazareth down to Bethlehem? What incited them? We looked at this last week. The Roman emperor (laughs) commanded everybody in the Roman world to go back to their hometown, home village, and sign up because we're going to tax you, we're going to tax you, we're going to tax the daylights out of you, but we want everybody to go back to their home area to get on the tax rolls. That's what sent Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They showed up, as we saw last week, they showed up in Bethlehem, and here's the Davidic estate, and they are the last to show up, and what's called, there was no room for them in the inn, really meant the guest quarters of the family estate. There's no room. The place is already packed, and that's why they went to the cave stable there in Bethlehem. That's where Jesus was born, was in the cave stable in Bethlehem. But here we have, in chapter 2, Jesus having been born in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph stay in Bethlehem. 
Joseph is working, and at the same time that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, there's some magi, some intelligentsia in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, the other, the eastern half of the Fertile Crescent, and they are, they see a, I'll put, I'll say star, but put quotes around that. They saw a glowing, they had a glowing revelation. And they come to Jerusalem. It's two years later when they show up in Jerusalem. And they say to Herod, and when they showed up, by the way, it isn't just Herod that's upset. All of it says all of Jerusalem is is what is go what. There's no statement in the scripture of how many men there were. It states there were three gifts that are named: the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why would all Jerusalem be shook up by three guys showing up? Well, they're not shook up by three guys showing up. They're they're shook up by a whole bunch of guys. Intel, top crust <laughs> advisors from the Tigris Euphrates Valley, probably with a heavy armed escort. After all, not only are they wealthy and important, but they're carrying a lot of wealth with them to hand over to Messiah. They have a heavy armed escort, and they get to Jerusalem and they say, where is he who is to be born king of the Jews? For we, while we were in the east, saw a star, a bright object. And we knew, God told us the significance of that bright object, that the Messiah of Israel has been born in Israel. Tell us, where is he to be born? Who are these guys? Read the Hebrew scriptures. When Babylon conquered Israel, Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar conquered Babylon, conquered Jerusalem three times. The first wave of captives that he took back to Babylon were the sons of the wealthy, influential politicos and Daniel. Now we only know of four of them, but there was a whole lot more than four of them. We know Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they took these, along with many others, to Babylon and put them into the school for bureaucrats. They had a bureaucratic school. Well, smart guys. we got to train these bureaucrats, right? By the way, all of those young men would have been castrated. They all would have been made into eunuchs. That's what government bureaucrats were. In all of these cultures in the Middle East, the, the bureaucrats were all, because you don't want anybody getting near the emperor or the king who can put a knife through their ribs. In all of those cultures, you had to be a whole male to be a ruler. So all these, so we know the names of four, but there were a whole lot more than four that were taken the bureaucrat school. And then you know the account from Daniel where they've just gotten out of those, these four, as well as the others, have all gotten out of the bureaucrat school. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream vision, and none of his advisors can tell him the, the mean. 
tell him the vision. He brings them in. He says, I've had this vision. And I want you to tell me the meaning. Okay, well, fine. Tell us the vision. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to tell you the vision because your claim is that you're going to the gods who gave me the vision to get the meaning of the vision. This is so important to me, I'm going to hold this test. The same gods who gave me the vision should be able to tell you not just the meaning, but what it was, what was the content. That's my test on you, that you're not making up an interpretation. And they said, stop, 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 stop. No king has ever demanded this of his advisors. Well, I am. And if you don't do what I say, I will kill you and your families. I'll wipe you all out. And the head of the palace guard comes knocking on the door of some guys who probably weren't even invited to the party. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Mishael and Azariah. I'm here to kill you. Stop. Stop. Uh, Daniel, God has gifted Daniel with the ability to interpret dreams. Would you give us some time to cry out to our God that he will give this dream and its me- or vision and its meaning to Daniel? And we will let you know when that's happened. Now, what does this tell you that this head of the palace guard who's got ordered to kill these guys says, yeah, I'll give you that time. Those four men had already established some kind of a respect with this fellow that he's willing to give them that possibility. And then a few days later, they come back to this man and say to him, God has indeed given the vision and its meaning to Daniel. Then that man, the head of the palace guard, ushers Daniel into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. And I just love the fact that this fellow says to them, he says to Nebuchadnezzar rather, uh, I have found a man who can tell you your dream, O emperor, and its meaning. He what incredible strong confidence does this guy have in these three guys who just got out of the bureaucrat school? That tells you that God has already been doing a work. And so Daniel not only tells Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was, but its meaning and how wonderful this is to Nebuchadnezzar. What a testimony. Then chapter three of Daniel, we have this idol erected out there in the plain there near Babylon and all these bureaucrats from every province of the Babylonian Empire come there and their job is to fall down and worship this enormous idol which I would dare say resembles Nebuchadnezzar because what did God say what did Daniel say to Nebuchadnezzar about the the statue in his vision you are the head of gold I think that idol may well have resembled Nebuchadnezzar, clearly. And when everybody, at the sound of the trumpet, at the sound of this, at the beating of the drums, everybody's to fall down and worship this idol. We don't know where Daniel was. He was probably off on some other bureaucratic task. But Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refused to fall and down and worship. And they, by the way, that chapter is all a proclamation sent throughout the whole Babylonian Empire. And there are bureaucrats there from every promise, for every promise, pro, pro, province, province. 
And they watched these three men get thrown into a fiery furnace. The only thing that burns is the ropes that bound them. And they're walking around in the fiery furnace with a fourth fellow. And then they're called out. And the whole point of that chapter, which was a proclamation sent out by Nebuchadnezzar, is don't you dare, any of you, say anything bad about the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or you're in trouble with me. What kind of an impression are, is God making on the minds of these in the intelligentsia of Babylon? Then when the Persians conquered Babylon, who is immediately appointed, this guy, he's probably in his eight, 70s by now. Daniel is appointed the principal advisor to Darius the Mede. And it was the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius the Mede is the, is the leader. And Daniel is appointed as one of his chief advisors. And Darius is so impressed with this guy, Daniel, that he's considering making him the head of all the bureaucracy. And out of jealousy, these other Persian and Medo-Persian bureaucrats, are they construct this thing against him. We're going to have him thrown thrown into a death. Anybody that brings for 30 days, O king, any cries out in prayer to any god or any other uh, politico other than you will be thrown into the den of lions. Oh, okay, well, I'm for that. Then he finds out, oh, they only used my ego so that it would betray my most respected advisor. They cast Daniel into the den of lions and you know the account. Darius cries out to the God of Daniel all night to spare Daniel. And in the morning, he goes to the place where they've cast Daniel down, and he's, Daniel, was your God whom you serve continually able to deliver you? Yes, O king. He was, and they pulled Daniel out, and they threw all the betraying bureaucrats and their families in, and they don't even hit the floor before the lions are catching them. So it was not an empty lion's den. It was a packed lion's den. Well, folks, imagine the impact that has on these bureaucrats, these advisors, not only in their own day, but in the days to and you've got a fellow by the name of Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, who becomes the chief advisor of the Persian emperor. And decades later, Nehemiah is the chief advisor of the Persian emperor, the cupbearer, the head of security. So we've got a whole lot of these people in the East, Tigris Euphrates Valley, who have heard. Okay, why am I going to all this detail? Because it tells us What's inciting these? When they saw, they're in the east, when they saw this glowing object, and they knew what it meant. The Son of God, God's own Son has been born. The King of the Jews has been born. And they get their wealth together. They get their thing together. Two years later, they show up in Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Herod's not even a Jew. He is the appointed king, appointed by the Romans. He freaks out. Jerusalem is freaking out. Why? Because you've got this big 
armed band, wealthy fellows with these, these, the accompanying fellows with their weapons. Okay, what does Herod do? Herod keeps the Jewish leadership separate from the, he doesn't say, well, ask the high priest. No, he inquires of the high priest, where is the Messiah to be born? He's to be born in Bethlehem, which is to the south, about a day's journey or so from Jerusalem. And so then he tells the Magi, they leave Jerusalem. Now, I hate to mess with you too bad. There's nothing in this text that says they left at night. Why would they leave at, in the middle of the night? They're not. They're leaving in the daytime. They get out. They're headed towards Bethlehem. And suddenly that star, so-called, that bright, shiny glow that they had seen two years before suddenly appears in front of them and leads them to a specific house in Bethlehem. Well, that can't be a star in the sky because it depends on where you're standing as to what house it looks like. No, it is hovering over personal conjecture. What is that glorious glow? It is the Shekinah glory of God that had been inhabiting the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later the temple in the time of David and his descendants up to the Babylonian captivity. It is the glory of his presence. And And it says in Matthew's gospel, what does it say? They went in and they worshiped him. There's no mention of Joseph being there. Well, it's the middle of the day, probably the middle of the week. He's off doing his job. They knock on the door. Mary answers the door. And it says, and they came in and worshipped the child. It's not the word brephos, meaning an infant. It's the word paideia, meaning a child, a young child. They came in and worshipped the child and presented the three principal gifts, probably not the only ones, gold, silver, excuse me, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense was used for the worship of God. All of these are outrageously valued. The gold is obvious, but myrrh and frankincense were extremely valuable, especially actually the myrrh was outrageously valuable. And they gifted these things to the parents. But they are in regard to, they are an act of worship for their son. For their son. Then, having been warned by God in a dream, they do not go back to Herod. They sneak out and they head back to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And then that night, In a dream, an angel speaks to Joseph, go, because Herod will seek to kill him. And that night, he gathers up Mary, the baby, and a few things, and they head and go to Egypt. He tells him to go to Egypt. I love the fact, in fulfillment of Hebrew scriptures, he will be born in Bethlehem. I love the fact that as it says here, 
they go to Egypt. They spend probably two or three more years in Egypt before word comes to them that Herod the Great has died. And out of Egypt I have called my son. (laughs) And so Jesus fulfills that. Jesus is a small child. He's not making these things happen. (laughs) Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then he comes back and they come to Judea and, and find out that Archelaus has taken the place of Herod the king, his father. Archelaus is a known maniac. Okay, this is dangerous, God. This is dangerous, God. And again, an angel tells Joseph. He had told Joseph in Egypt, you can go back. Now he tells him, go, do not stay here in Judea. And they go back to their hometown of Nazareth. So here are these prophecies all fulfilled about the Lord Jesus, where he would born. Out of Egypt I have called my son, and he will be called a Nazarene. Well, wait a minute. Where does it say that? In the Old Testament, he will be called a Nazarene. Well, Natsar is the Hebrew word, one of the Hebrew words, for branch. And it says in Isaiah 11 once, 11 one, yeah, one. (laughs) Isaiah 11 one, that Messiah will be a branch from David. And so the very name Nazareth, we would translate it as branch town. And so Jesus goes back to Nazareth and he is the branch of David. He will be called a Nazarene. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? We're asked in the Gospels, well, come and see. (laughs) Come and see. That's in John's Gospel. And the fellow who went to see started worshiping Jesus right away. So what do we have here? We see the details of our Lord's governing the life experience of God the Son. And I would dare say, as we read this narrative, are we surprised by that? Well, of course not. We've got, I'm, I've been told that there are 330 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. <laughs> yes, God's going to be governing every detail of God the Son's walk on the planet. Every detail about his genealogy, about where he goes and what he does, and all these things are going to be fulfillment. Uh, 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 is God any less our shepherd? No, he is not any less our shepherd than he was the shepherd of his son. He is with us every step of the way. His eyes are fixed upon us. A shepherd's principal duties are to provide guidance, protection, and sustenance to the sheep. Or Psalm 23 is a beautiful expression of that. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's a really weird... I shall not lack for anything. I shall not lack for anything. His rod and his staff, the two pieces of equipment, and the, sh- the rod was to beat off the predators, and the staff was that shepherd's crook which, with which he drew the stupid sheep out of the thorns. <laughs> 
His, uh, but I, as a sheep, draw comfort from the fact that he is my protector and my rescuer. He leads me beside the still waters. Very interesting. If you ever had sheep, goats, uh, we've had sheep, goats, horses. Sheep are really dumb. I mean, honestly, for him to call us sheep is not a compliment. <laughs> it's a compliment of him to be our shepherd, but it's not a... Goats are completely different. If, you have, if you're shepherding sheep and goats at the same time, whenever you're coming up to a body of water where you want the sheep to drink, you always hold the goats back and let the sheep drink first because sheep will only drink out of clean, good water. If it's muddy, if it's all messed up, they would rather die of thirst. On the short, they will not drink that. Goats, on the other hand, will jump in the water, tear things up, turn it all muddy, and then drink, 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 drink. They got no problem with that. But sheep, no. Still waters, green pastures, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He will lead us to that ultimate victory banquet. How good a shepherd, how loyal a shepherd, how dedicated a shepherd do we have? We see that shepherding care in the life of his son, but it is also an example to us. He is loyal to us. When somebody puts their hand out to harm us, they are in deep trouble because they just poked our father in the eye. My eye is focused on you. My eye is focused on you. It says in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are like the... the I can think of what it means, but I can't think... The, the mar, what is it? The eye. You, I, you are the apple. Ap, the apple of the eye is actually a metaphor for the pupil. And so, when the, we are the apple of his eye, how defensive of you are are you of your eyes? Something's flying at you. What's the first thing you do? <laughs> you cover your eyes. We are the apple of his eye. That's how focused on defending us, our God is. We are the pupil of his eye. He will defend us instantly. And all of heaven's resources will be poured out on our behalf. He is there, he is there, he is there. How does Jesus close, the Matthew's gospel ends, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and I will be with you. He is as much with us as he was with the apostles whom he was speaking to that day, recorded in Matthew 28. We read the narrative here. Our God is so careful, so good at his shepherding. This is who our Lord is. This is who our Savior is. And this one for whom the Father did so much care demonstrated so much care. He sent him to the cross. 
How much does God love the Son? God loves, the God the Father loves the Son immeasurably. But he, God so loved us that he gave his only begotten Son, the full heir of all things. And all we have to do to receive the benefit, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. All we have to do is abandon our trust in our own works and anything else and abandon that and place all of our trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross and an eternal welcome in the presence of the Holy God belongs to us. That's his promise. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we want to thank you this Christmas season is a season of gifting. But in fact, the chief giver was you. The chief giver was you. You gave your son on Calvary's cross to pay sin's penalty for us that we might feel your embrace. We have a unrestrained welcome in your presence because of what he did for us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We give you all the praise and all God's people said, Amen.